Hello, welcome to Medicine on Box Voices. My name is Sam Giglani. Here we go in pursuit of conversations about medicine, not just about what it is and what it does, but about what it means, about the whole surprise of human life, its inevitable weathering, and the challenge of how to care for all of us. Hello and welcome to Medicine Unboxed Voices and I'm here with uh, Richard Holloway in his house in Edinburgh. Richard has been, um, over time, the Bishop of Edinburgh, Chair of the Ethics Committee of the Human Fertilisation Embryology Authority uh, and also Chairman of the Scottish Arts Council. He is now a writer, a broadcaster, a thinker often described um, as outspoken and controversial, which is interesting. Every time I see a biography of yours, those one of those two words is there, Richard. Um, you were born in 1934, which makes you now... 1933, ah, even older. <clears throat> so 86 um, this year. I'm 85, I'll be 86 in November. <clears throat> and you were born in a Glasgow tenement, is that right? Um, I was born in Parcel Park, a notorious um, scheme in the north of Glasgow. Um, but I think we were in quite a nice wee council house at the time. Um, um, our lives got interrupted by um, World War II. My father was unemployed and then got a job um, in the United uh, Turkey Red Factory in Alexandria, north of Glasgow, where he came from. So we moved there in, in 1940. Memories of that time in Glasgow, growing up? Vague memories. I can remember my first day at school. Um, I can remember the little tiny halfpenny um, little bottles of milk. You you paid tuppence halfpenny a week. You got a wee bottle of milk every day. Cost um, a half penny. I can remember that oddly enough. I can remember very odd things. I can remember a thing called Lucky Middens where. Um, working-class kids from Postle Park marauded into slightly more middle-class areas and raided their middens, looked through their trash to see if there were any treasures. It was called Lucky Middens. Um, and uh, I, I, I can remember another funny wee incident. I must have been instinctively religious even as a wee boy um, because um, I can remember playing in the back court in Cologne Street in Postle Park um, shouting up to God to throw me down a piece, a sandwich. And one of the neighbours chucked me out something. And so I threw my head up and said, God, throw me down a, a, um, a motor car. So, <laughs> yeah, very few memories. I can remember being evacuated. Uh, we <clears throat> were evacuated into Galloway, into a town called Port William, uh, away down in the far southwest of Scotland. Um, the next thing going west is America. Um, and I can remember uh, there um, uh, a woman called Miss Dodds put us up. Oddly enough, years later, when I was at um, the Wigtown Book Festival, um, I paid. A, uh, I drove over to Port William, which isn't very far away, and I knocked on the door of the house, Miss um, Dodds' house, who put, took me and my big sister Gertie in. And she wasn't, she was dead, but her niece was there. and She'd inherited um, the house and kind of vaguely remembered stories about the, uh, about the evacuees. And I was able to show her a, a picture taken uh, with me and Miss Dodds. So that was a funny wee link right back to, 
to those days. But I don't have a great memory for the past. I think I've lived at such a tilt. I've kind of discarded a lot of stuff. But those are precious. Do you remember in that time at all what was the initial or when and what the initial impulse to the to the priesthood was? I remember that very clearly. Um, my wee cousin died of spinal meningitis. <clears throat> she lived up the road. We lived in Random Street in a room and kitchen, uh, which was a kind of standard Scottish type of housing for the poor, a button bend. Um, and Mary uh, lived up the street and her daughter had died. And my mother um, went there to comfort her, help her make arrangements. And she said to me, when you come home for your dinner in the middle of the day, Dick, um, don't come home, come to, come to Mary's and I'll be, I'll be there. So I, I, I came down from the academy, went in there to get my soup. Um, and the rector of the local Episcopal church was in there making the funeral arrangements. Father Nigel Mackay, an unlikely tall, um, he was an Irishman at um, Trinity College, Dublin, a model complexion, a comb-over, an unlikely hero for a young boy. Um, and he turned this little shrine, this little church in this industrial town into a bit of an Anglo-Catholic shrine, a lot of mystery, lights, incense, that kind of stuff. Um, and... I came in, um, he, he finished the interview, made the funeral arrangements, and he said to my mother, um, who's, you know, who's that? She said, that's my wee boy, Dick. And she said, and he said, can he sing? And he said, hi, Dick's got a great voice. Would you like to come and join the choir at St Mungo's up in Burnbury? And I said, okay. I turned up at that, that <clears throat> following Sunday, and I fell in love with the kind of, I didn't know anything that it was about, but I fell in love with mystery, with light, with incense, with the possibility of otherness, a kind of glimpsed transcendence. Never really hit on the doctrinal teaching side. It was somehow the reach towards the beyond, the other, the way out there. And I I kind of had that feeling on the hills because I was a hill walker as a wee boy. And looking back, it's I walked the hills alone hmm. as quite a young kid. Um, I doubt if that would be allowed nowadays. And, and again, there was this kind of searching for something, I don't know, a kind of reaching beyond. And I also encountered that at um, St. Mungo's. Um, and so I bedded down there and I became a great help. I sang in the choir. I, I gardened for the rector in his in his rectory. There's a wonderful <clears throat> quote I've got from from leaving Alexandria, describing yourself being propelled into religion in search of the great love to which you could give yourself mm. away, and that that search then was one of being drawn into the very tangible mystery. The fact that things were, it, it, that's what pulled you to it rather than the doctrine, that here was a place of mystery. Didn't know much about And I think it was probably related to the movies. I mean, I was a yes. great moviegoer as a wee boy. And I loved the kind of the shame type figure, the lonely messianic hero who comes in, sorts out a community's difficulties and then rides off into sunset. The lonely man who's never allowed to settle. I love that kind of stuff. And there was something about the priesthood that kind of suggested that, 
the giving away life, the, the man for others, um, the person who doesn't um, live for, for his own needs but to care for others. All that kind of romantic stuff got wrapped up and tied up into this kind of bundle. Um, and about 18 months after I started going to St. Mungo's, um, I told Nigel that I'd like to be a priest because that this, the, the priest figure had become this kind of heroic figure for me, uh, a kind of, you know, Father Shane, as it were. Um, uh, and also it combined this giving yourself away to a great romantic purpose, <clears throat> not living a kind of mean and ordinary life, but, you know, the grand gesture that, you know, the orchestra rolls and you ride off and it says the end, that kind of stuff was going on. And having, but then saying that, it's no secret, and you write about this beautifully, but from that point until leaving um, your position as Bishop of Edinburgh, what, 20 years ago now, there's been this tussle, hasn't there, between on the one hand, the romantic ideal, this idealised version of ourselves and the calling and the much more, um, well, painfully hard-won real self and trying to ex almost dig for the latter in the face of this ideal. Is that something you'd recognise? I do indeed. And I, 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 one of the things I, I make a theme of in my writings is that we don't know who we are when we start out in life and we tend to model ourselves on the kind of people we'd like to be. Mm. Um, and I kind of model myself on this kind of uh, spiritual superhero figure. Um, and I committed myself to an institution that's just another institution. Um, it may have this romantic ideal of the giving away of life, the serving the poor, the not living unto yourself. But in fact, it's an institution and all institutions, their first law is their own survival. Um, and that's what cramps and diminishes religion. Um, and I probably didn't realize I was, I didn't have the institutional loyalty gene in me. Um, and it got me into a lot of trouble over the years. I didn't, it wasn't that I decided to break laws. I kind of didn't think about laws. I mean, it never occurred to me that they were anything other than convenient arrangements that you could discard um, if need arose. Uh, that's one of one reason why my favourite saying of Jesus is the Sabbath was made for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath. Mm. The Sabbath is a rule to help. If it starts constraining you, you know, kick it out, ignore it. Um, and I I didn't know in myself that I, I had that kind of inner anarchic um, approach to this kind of stuff. Well, is it anarchic, though, or is it genuinely, without wishing to aggrandise it too much, being more interested in the whole business of finding and excavating the truth rather than sitting with constructs. I think it's certainly that, but I, I, I quite like the word anarchic. All it means is weariness towards rules and regulations, yes. okay. anarchy. Sake, yeah. um, and the anarchist is not necessarily someone who blows things up and just wants to destroy a society, but someone who who sees all institutions and regulations as relative to human need and not as absolute. And the trouble with the human mind uh, are limitations, and there are certain people that are more prone to this than others. Um, we, <coughs> we actually get fixated on the institution, on the rule, um, and the rule becomes so dominant, it destroys the people it's meant to serve. Yes. Um, and it, it's, it's in that sense that I think I was naturally not... A rule keeper. I mean, I 
I would keep rules if I thought they were serving a human purpose, but the moment I saw they weren't, I didn't have any problems ignoring them. Um, and that's an awkward capacity to have if you're a leader in an institution. And that's what happened to me. I became a bishop, probably out of a kind of vanity, puzzlement, um, um, intrigue, curiosity. Um, and I found myself leading an institution, I think in ways that sometimes fitted the need of the times, but also when I started speaking um, too openly about the need to rethink our attitude towards gay people, um, uh, the place of women, they were big issues um, 20 years ago. Um, uh, most, of them, most of those issues have been resolved. But the people that challenge the norms of an institution are always given a hard time by the people who fear change. I might come on to that because I think that's, I'm just going to bring you back for a moment to the mystery that drew you there, which remains, a compul you know, you're compelled by this, aren't you? You're, you're, you describe human consciousness as, as a slightly ambiguous power. Yeah, the fact that we are the universe thinking about itself, yet encountering undoubtedly and regularly large amounts of sorrow, pain, suffering, and looking out and asking perpetually, you know, what is this? Who is there? And being met by silence. So the mystery you allude to is often a silent, dark space, but it's frightening by virtue of that. And you talk about there being a number of potential responses to that. On the one hand, the search for the concrete and, you know, in many ways, medicine, science and religion share that drive. Or interestingly, also the search, the, the pull towards faith in something or the other. You, you feel that actually your most comfortable place or right place is something that's neither of those two, but something that's more wishing to live in the uncertainty that is um, everywhere. Is that? I think that nails it, actually. I mean, I'm very fond of, a, of, a, of an ugly phrase that was invented, I think, um, by um, a famous uh, a Scottish poet, Macdermott, um, the Caledonian anti-Zyzygy. <laughs> and anti-Zyzygy is the existence of competing or opposing polarities in the same entity. Mm. Um, that you, that you think this and you think it's opposite and you hold them both in a kind of uncomfortable tension. And I think that um, uh, I've been, in a sense, it's kind of def defined me. I mean, I once described myself as a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, which <laughs> is a quote from the New Testament, an unflattering really right? quote. Yes. Mm. Um, and I think I was a double-minded man, unstable in all my ways, because I could I could feel the pool both of atheism and of theism. Um, uh, uh, the deep feeling inside me that this extraordinary universe may came from nothing and is going to nothing and means nothing, except that in us it's thinking about itself and trying to struggle to achieve some kind of meaning out of it. And yet, on the other hand, that in us, Extraordinary things have happened. I mean, it may just be a great um, 14 billion year old explosion of stuff and matter into time space. But in us, pity has happened. In us, 
symphonies have been heard, pictures have been painting, novels have been written, um, uh, brows have been uh, stroked, cups of cold water have been given. I mean, all of that, is, it's astonishing to me that out of that <clears throat> material nothingness that may actually end in just a bloody great explosion, a kind of another interning to a black hole, but we will have been. Mm. And I can't get off that particular um, creative absurdity. Mm. Uh, it's what keeps me, it, it's why I get... Um, upset by the settled mind, the settled believer that knows exactly how it all figures, or the settled unbeliever who knows exactly how it doesn't figure at all. I'm caught here, and I'm actually quite happy to be caught there. I mean, I've learned to be more comfortable. I used to try and argue for one position, but I've reached the stage now when um, I no longer want to justify my position. I'm not, I'm not trying to persuade anyone. I'm simply trying to say, this is where I am. But it's interesting you say that because <clears throat> the, the poles, such as they are, so you know, militant atheism or very strong religious faith, are dismissive of or, or, or um, suspicious of the uncertain position. And in fact, the uncertain position, in many ways, isn't the one that holds sway on the world. It's the it's the kind of strongly articulated argument, you know, shelved in concrete, that makes things ostensibly happen. I guess, and I think that the, the, the trick is to have enough conviction to do stuff, but not enough conviction to prevent you realising that some of the stuff you're doing is bad and stop doing it, um, which is why I believe in, in a, uh, living in a state of provisionality. I mean, we thought it was all right to enslave people um, until 1,800 years ago. Um, we thought it was all right and there's still parts of the world where it was okay to um, stone adulterers or gay people. Um, I thought a number of things until a few years ago that now I think are appalling. So it seems to me that if you read our history and look into the human heart, you have to acknowledge that we get things very badly wrong. And if you hold to your principles too tightly, you may not be able to relinquish them when you realize that you've got it um, badly wrong. Um, it, I mean, I, I lived through the argument in our church, the manifest absurdity of denying that women could be ordained mm. or even vote. My God, they only got the vote in, in 1918 in this country. Um, and, and so on and so forth. There are many, many other examples of it. I mean, the, the big thing that's going on in our culture at the moment is our appalling treatment of the planet, which is our own home. Um, it's young people that are teaching us that. I have a kind of what I call a hundred years test when I'm ranting about this stuff uh, to an audience. I say, propel yourself a hundred years forward and look back from there and guess at what you will see back then happening now and you going along with it that absolutely repels you. Yes. Um, uh, I remember when I was um, a priest in Edinburgh visiting a family who just found a wee boy's boot up a chimney. Um, and of course, in Victorian Christian Edinburgh, wee boys were sent up chimneys to clean them. Um, we sent kids down mines. We sent blind donkeys. I mean, the things that we have done should make us live 
tentatively, mm. because we don't know what we are getting so badly <clears throat> wrong at the moment. I mean, we're certainly fucking the planet. We know that. Um, uh, but what other things, in even in our own circle, the abuse of men towards women, um, uh, the control and all of that, and, and we all, all men have some anxiety about the way they've responded to, to these tensions. So I think live kind of lightly. Don't be so paralyzed by your anxiety about getting things wrong that you never actually do anything, um, but engage with reality um, in a way that enables you to drop it when you got it wrong. And what do you think? I mean, live tentatively. I love that. What, what is the push that stops us from doing that? That wants that that compels us to attach ourselves to um, tie ourselves to particular masks. Like, to me, it's always felt that that comes from fear. Oh yes, anxiety. I mean, um, Adam Phillips is brilliant on this. He said that the, the, the mark of, of extreme views and convictions is a sign of deep inner unreconciled doubt. Of what? Fear and doubt of what? That you may be, that you've maybe got it all wrong, that maybe things aren't as certain as you want them to be, um, uh, that maybe this person is not your enemy, you will cave into it. I mean, um, we know this uh, in all sorts of other ways. We know that very often, um, uh, to go back to the gay example, that very often the angriest anti-gay people have been running from their own inner gayness. Mm. We know that. It's a well-known phenomenon. Yes. I mean, I've, been, I've experienced things like that. Um, uh, the things you shout loudest about is, are the things that you're maybe accusing yourself of or, or are least certain about, um, which is why noise is, is usually an indicator of a certain kind of bad faith. Um, and there's certainly a lot of it in our culture at the moment, all the, all the ranting and shouting that goes on. A, a friend of mine has just died and she wrote um, a remarkable book about her dying. She interrogated her own death and she was a conflict resolver. Uh, her name was Ruth Scott. She was an amazing woman, a priest, a, um, a conflict resolver, uh, became a Quaker in the end. And one of the things that she said in this amazing book is that when she's doing, when she, she, she's gone all over the world into conflict situations to, to help people resolve their differences. And one of the things you get them to do is to provide an argument for the position that they're most opposed to. Right. My God, that's difficult. Yes. Um, because once you start doing that, you have to shift into the other person's seat um, and it begins to... And recognise that. I recognise that in me because <clears throat> I, I've, I've done a lot of arguing in my life. I think sometimes for good causes. Um, but when I'm in an argument mode, I'm not listening. I'm, I'm loading up my cannon. I'm preparing my assault on, on the weakness of your argument. So I can't hear you. I can't meet you. Maybe even in your wrongness... But it may be a wrongness that I have to hear because it, it will echo my own wrongness. See, by that um, version of events you just, you've just explained to me, then to live in this provisionality, to live lightly and expectantly, somehow connects, doesn't it, with the whole business of love? Oh, God, yes. Yeah. How? Yeah. I, I guess through, through this, you mentioned pity earlier mm. on and mm. the, the recognition of another's Similar provisionality and therefore yeah. sorrow, fears. Another dead friend of mine, Liz Templeton, we made a book out of her stuff, an anthology recently, and we called the book In Your Loving Is Your Knowing. 
that you cannot know what you do not love and you cannot love what you cannot what you do not know so in order to if if you are truly loving um you need to and if you're to love your enemy which of course is 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 the the extraordinary command of Jesus um uh, that George Steiner was said was one of the most um extraordinary command imperatives in history um, depthless he said it that great jewish polymath um if you are to uh, love then you are you are going to have to understand and engage with and be present within the other especially if it's an enemy um, certainly if you're going to forgive you have to you have to do you have to stop uh, you have to interrupt the consequences of the offense that's been done to you in order to reach into the soul not of the event but of the other who committed it to imagine it to imagine you have to do more than imagine you you almost have to enter it mm. you have to identify um with the person who may have assaulted you mm. this is the most difficult thing in the world to do you you can very easily um uh, find a way of of approving of the things that your friends have done badly but to find pity and compassion for your enemies and their acts maybe their terroristic acts um that's that is profoundly difficult but it's the only level of imagination that actually moves us on i mean it's what made for instance uh, the peace process in northern ireland possible yes. they each had to commit this extraordinary act of courage and ability to cross over into the lives of completely different paradigms I just wonder what your view is on <clears throat> so much of your writing well your writing's infused by references to the arts poetry do those entities disciplines have a place in fostering this kind of imagination or expressing rather i mean we you talk about them expressing the sorrows of the world rather than somehow trying to mathematically solve them yeah yeah But the reason I love poets, um, and I remember reading something that C.S. Lewis wrote, which has become a kind of trope for writers now. Um, uh, a young correspondent wrote to him and asking um, how to write, and he said that uh, that if you're writing a story, don't tell, show, don't um, say he was charming, make him charming, show the charm, um, and that's that's a kind of uh, a difficult thing to do um but but in in thinking about the arts and philosophy the people who've nourished me most have been creative writers who have shown and expressed the human condition without comment a great novel um uh, you you will have to sit in all sorts of different places enter the consciousness of all sorts of different people they they express it uh, whereas theologians philosophers try to explain it um i'm very fond of a latin phrase i picked up from uh, an american philosopher called arthur danto he was a philosopher of of aesthetics and he described the human being as an ens representans a being that who can't help representing the world back to itself we're constantly doing this listen to people on the bus going home from work and they'll be represent retelling their day i said to him and he said oh, you should have seen his face um and that's what the great artists do they they listen in they look in they tune in they they're flooded by what the world is saying and they they represent it they get it out and you read them and say yes 
That's me. Um, and I think that's more creative and more honest and more life and heart changing than the argumentative philosophers, theologians, even scientists who say, this is how it is. Let me explain this to you. Um, uh, don't bother your pretty little head about that. I'll tell you how it is. Um, a lot of the content, though, is this a fair thing to say, of the arts is, of course, there are you know moments of, of joy and victory, but mu so much is sorrowful. Yes. Now we retreat from that. We sort of, yeah, you know, yeah, I, I, yeah. people will often say to me, oh, I couldn't do your job. But this, mm. the, the, the stuff we navigate is sorrowful. It's the stuff of oh, God, being human. Yes, yes, yes. Um, because much of what, in fact, we do navigate is sorrow, our own sorrows, our own heartbreaks, the, uh, the accidental um, casualties of history and all of that. Um, uh, I was reading a bit of Joan, I love Joan Didion, and I was reading something in the White Album recently, which got me prompted to a piece of writing. And she talks about the fact that we tell stories in order to give meaning to our existence, uh, to the story of our lives. Um, and she, at least she thought that that's what stories did, until she read a newspaper account um, of, of, a, of a young mother with bleached blonde hair called Jean Fouquet, who put her five-year-old daughter out to die on a Californian highway and then drove off with her husband and, and the little girl's step-brother and sister. And when the emergency services finally picked up the wheel assay, they had to prise her fingers loose from the hurricane fence. Um, and uh, Didion says of that, I didn't know a story I could tell to justify that. Mm. Um, and what the great artists do is they, they, they reveal those absurdities, the, those, those events that we can't make uh, cosy stories about. I mean, uh, a great novelist like Dostoevsky does this all the time. You, you get the horror, you get the imprisonment, you get the idiocy. Um, and good, deep novels do that. Good, deep preaching can do it as well. Um, uh, but I think art does it better, uh, which is why often when you come out after a play or a good movie, you want to keep quiet. And what is the what's the mechanism there in revealing it in exploring in in just revealing it? Is that somehow transcendent, for want of a better word, in itself? What's the what's the good of it to say? Oh, look here are here is sorrow. What does that serve? It tells it. I think um, the good of it may be that it sets it down. It says, this has happened. Um, this has occurred. I don't know whether it has any meaning, um, but it, it, it's a bit like um, the T.S. Eliot poet uh, about the coming of the wise men when one of them says, set down this, set down this. Was it a birth or was it a death? There's an urgency to it. Yeah, yes. yeah. you have to do that. The great artist just has to tell it. Um, and, uh, and of course, uh, one of the things when we're um, thinking about our own death, maybe the dying of a universe, uh, the thing I love about our species is that we're able to raise a voice against that. I mean, the great requiems, the great, the great pieces of music that don't solve um, the mystery of our, of our existence, it's tragedy, it's sorrow, it's pain, but they express it. They, they may even shout against it, yes. or they may, they may simply 
incarnated, give it a modality, which is why great music can break you up. It doesn't resolve anything, but you feel the pain. I mean, Tippett's um, uh, famous oratorio, when he channels the spirituals of, of the African-American slaves, steal away, steal away home. I ain't got long to stay here. And you feel the pain. Mm. We did that. You know, we brought thousands from West Africa and and enslaved them in the tobacco farms of South America. And America still hasn't purged that. Mm. Can you feel the pain of that? Mm. Only music or a great poem can do that. And in feeling the pain, in feeling the pain, this comes back to, it, it serves what you called interruption earlier on. It makes us, it, 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 it stops that cycle of blind... Or at least it has the possibility. It has the possibility yes. of stopping the repetition. Yes. Yes. Um, and even the greatest monsters can suddenly see that. I mean, it doesn't often happen. I mean, a lot of the monsters are unexplained. Um, uh, but men and women can repent. They can see, which is why I think um, that the object of everyone's life is, is, is self-understanding, the examined life. Don't die without knowing who you were. And in closing comments, if you would then, faced with so much that is um, painful or unpalatable, what do you see as grounds for hope? Is hope a word that you see as a palliative or do you think it's a real thing? Oh, I think it's a real thing. Um, and sometimes it's hope against hope. Uh, it's hope in the midst of hopelessness. Um, but I, I, I do think that a reading of history can comfort you. Um, uh, the woman um, uh, who refused to go to the back of the bus, one time she just, she was tired, um, but she refused to go to the back of the bus in that event, um, started a whole process that did make a difference. It's, it's not complete, it's kind of slow. Um, the fact that, that, that we started realizing um, how cruel we could be to animals and to children, and so we developed mechanisms to respond to those. The mechanisms all go wrong, but at least we're still in there. We're still, we're still kind of punching away and struggling away with it. And the secret is not to give up, uh, not to lie back and think uh, nothing better can come. It's to avoid the idols that we can make it perfect. Yes. Or that there is a perfect leader somewhere who can make it perfect. Uh, those are cheap shortcuts. Um, this is it. This is the crisis that being human is in. And you can manage the crisis well or badly. But crisis, we're always in. And you talk about, you've written about the tremendous graciousness that you've met in people time and again. Mm -hmm. that, that's a source of hope, isn't it? That that's real. People's capacity for um, forgiveness, um, the forgiving of the other, uh, the kind of grace they've had. I've been helped in one of the reasons I felt so passionately about um, uh, equality for gay people is that many of the priests who nurtured me, I didn't realise at the time, were broken gay men mm. uh, serving an institution that officially hated them. Mm. And yet they gave themselves to it. Um, they had a love for the best of it. Um, and they mediated to me grace in my own struggles. Um, they found ways of balancing my own self-hatred. 
Um, that's why I love one of them. They, they, he never uh, was acknowledged as a gay priest, but um, Gerard Manley Hopkins, he tells me every day, my own heart let me more have pity on. Let me live to my sad self hereafter kind. And if I can be kind to myself and kind to you, that gradually swells and takes, and God, we need, we need, oh, we need gallons of kindness in our world at the moment, don't we? Richard Holloway, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Medicine Unboxed keeps its large audio and film archive online. Do take a look. But for now, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm